Okay, here we go. Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I'm the founder of 1000 Hours Outside, and I'm so honored to be talking with someone I've been following along, I think possibly for a decade, Tracy Gillett from Raised Good. Welcome. Thank you so much, Ginny. That's such a kind welcome. It's always an interesting, kind of bizarre thing when you follow something for a very long time and then you actually get to meet the person. Because at the start, you think, I would never get to meet this person. So it's such an honor and such a treat. And what you share brings so much hope to parents. I think in a lot of ways, it helps us to trust our instincts and to question maybe some of the practices that seem like they're right on the surface, but on the inside, we're not feeling quite so confident about them. And so you come and you open up the door to conversation and you share such great information. So you started Raised Good as an answer for your own questions. And then you started to share with others with millions of readers and parents worldwide that are now reading and joining in with your community. So can you just tell us where it all started? Yeah, sure. And thank you so much. And I just want to throw that right back at you because I've been following Thousand Hours Outside for so long as well. And I absolutely love this podcast. And so I'm thrilled to be on it. And I love everything that you share. And we both have a passion for the outdoors and getting outside. So I love everything that you do as well. And yeah, where Raise Good started, it really started from a fire in my belly where I just wanted to share everything that had made me so happy as a new mum. I've shared before that you know, I had fertility struggles um, trying to get pregnant with my son and took us three years to get pregnant. And I always thought that I would start a fertility blog just from what I'd learned through that experience. But as soon as I became pregnant and my focus kind of shifted pretty quickly and then had a baby and I was just so happy as a new mom. And I'm not like a happy, shiny, bright light all the time. Like I'm not sort of that way inclined, but I was just so filled up by the connection and being vulnerable to what motherhood was kind of teaching me. And I had a midwife, I shared this story on my blog, who said to me when I was pregnant, I had the crib and everything set up in the baby's room. And she said, oh no, he'll be he'll be sleeping in your bed with you. And I said, what do you mean? He'll be sleeping in his crib. And she said, no, he won't. I can tell. I can tell he'll be in your bed. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I thought she was mad and I left the consult. But then, you know, my curiosity, like we're similar, aren't we, Ginny? Like as soon as our curiosity gets peaked, we're like, we've got to learn more. Mm -hmm. And so I really started to dive into co-sleeping and bed sharing. And then it led down all these other paths like EC and unschooling and all of this other stuff. So I really wanted to share what I'd learned with other mums, like you say, just to open the conversation and just to give other mums uh, a voice. You know, I remember meeting mums at playgroups and they would be hesitant to say that they were co-sleeping. Mm -hmm. And I'd say, oh, I've been doing it for years. And they'd suddenly like a weight was lifted from their show. Oh, yeah. wow. And then they could talk about it, you know? So it was, yeah. yeah, just really wanting to open that conversation and not to say that everyone should be parenting this way, but just to say that those that do want to do it should be able to do it proudly and speak about it and yeah, really sort of welcome that joy into motherhood that I think can be sucked out when we follow other people's prescriptions. Mm -hmm. What a gift. I love that your story came full circle. It's like someone else planted the seed for you, your midwife. In my life, that's very similar. My midwife planted a lot of seeds 
that I thought were very strange at the time. And so then here's what you're doing. You're doing the same thing. You're planting seeds for other people. Hey, this could look different. And I think it's such a tragedy when we learn about things too late. It's so sad that we learn it too late. And, you know, there's always redemption and there's always things that we can do to redeem relationships and try and fix things. But sometimes we just miss these really special opportunities. And so I love that you have taken that concept and woven that in for millions of families around the world to say, hey, there's some other ways out there that you may not know of and let's talk about them. So let's start, since you brought it up, let's start with the bed sharing. I love the he'll sleep with you story. It's such a great story. You say this really big statement, modern day parents are peer pressured into denying their baby's needs. So the sleep is a really huge one. Now we're out of that stage and I know you're out of that stage too. But in that stage, you are desperate. You are desperate for your personhood. You are desperate for rest. Tell us what bed sharing might do for a mom and baby. Well, yeah, I definitely second that. You know, we're all desperate for sleep Mm -hmm. and desperate for rest in those early days and months and years of new parenthood. And so I think that desperation can make us very susceptible and vulnerable to external opinion. And when we're being told that the answer is just a sleep train and the answer is just to put the baby in another room and that the problem is that the baby isn't sleeping properly, then it's very easy to sort of go down that path. And I think it's rare to not take that path because the other voices of bed sharing and co-sleeping and biologically normal sleep are relatively quiet compared to this sort of loud sleep training culture that we live in. So I like to take it back to just thinking, how would I parent if I was just dropped on a deserted island and there was no baby stores and there was no parenting experts telling me how to parent? And I am a mammal, a social mammal, and I would hold my baby close. I wouldn't put them in a separate cave and expect them to sleep and hope that they're there in the morning we would hold them close. And that's what other mammals do if we look to other other animals. And that's how humans are designed to sleep. We're designed to keep our babies close. And Dr. James McKenna is just like, I just love him. He He has poured so much research and work into over his entire career diving into what co-sleeping looks like and how it benefits mums and how it benefits babies and how to do it safely. Because that's one of the big things is that obviously we all want to keep our babies safe Mm -hmm. universally. There's no parent that doesn't want to keep their baby safe. So recognizing how to keep our babies safe. And then if parents want to co-sleep or explore bed sharing, then there are just so many benefits to it. Breastfeeding mums get more sleep when they're bed sharing than when they're sleeping separately. There are study after study showing that the connection that you get through the night with your baby. Babies cry less. Mothers tend to wake less. They come out of sleep, but they still stay in sort of lighter stages of sleep, nurse their babies, and then go back to sleep. So they're much more rested. So I think it can just offer so much more rest. And I remember when I was a new mom thinking, you know, I wanted to breastfeed and thinking, my goodness, if I had to get up, Every time my baby wanted to breastfeed in the night, walk down the corridor, get him out of the crib, breastfeed him, try to stay awake while I was doing that, and then get him back to sleep in the crib and then go back and fall asleep again. 
only to repeat it two or three hours later, I would have just been a zombie. Like I would have just been so sleep deprived. It's awful. We did it. We, we did it actually. Oh, it's so hard. You wish you could go back in time. So we had our room in the upstairs. We were in a bungalow when our oldest son was born and he was in the downstairs. So we had a monitor and sometimes I, you know, I would give him to my husband, Josh, to take back. What a mess. And one time he fell down the stairs. So, <laughs> you know, cause you're in the middle of the night and everyone was fine. But when you're thinking about safety, I think it's, I think to picture the cave is such a great <laughs> analogy, Tracy. Like I'm gonna walk over to the next cave, the next cave there's cave. my baby and come back. <laughs> yeah, hope that a saber toothed tiger doesn't come and get it in the middle of the night. <laughs> You know, and that's our babies are born expecting to be held close. Like our babies don't know that they were born in 2023 or whatever year it is. They don't know that the windows lock and that there's, you know, that they are physically safe. What they need to feel safe is proximity, proximity to mum and dad. They need to feel that connection through their senses, whether that's touch or smell or sight or whatever it is. And Gordon Neufeld talks about how attachment unfolds in the first six years of life. And that very first stage is proximity. It's through physical connection. And so that's what our babies are expecting. So if we can give our babies what they're expecting, then we're kind of moving with their flow and it's making parenthood so much easier. Yeah. And it's also what our bodies are expecting. So it's kind of like parenting in the way that our bodies and our instincts are expecting instead of how our brains are telling us that culture is expecting us to parent. And when we look cross-culturally at other non-Western cultures, most of the world is Mm co-sleeping. And I talk about some studies. I have some sleep guides and I talk about some studies from some mums in Guatemala and They tell these mums about how parents in the US, you know, and not just the US, but other Western countries are parenting through the night. And these mums are shocked. They're like, oh, but who's with the baby? Like who's, and they can't understand why they would be separate. And I think it can just bring so much, like, yeah, it bring, when I think about if I didn't have those co-sleeping moments, the moments that I would have missed out on, yeah, yeah, that makes me sad because I'm like, it's amazing when we can kind of surrender into how we're designed to parent. Wow. It's really interesting too, to look at from perspective of other parents, the way people have been parenting in other cultures. And that helps us feel better about our decisions because it helps us to feel like this isn't weird. This is actually normal. I love this part in that article. People can find so much information on your website, raisedgood.com. But from this article about sleep training, there was a quote from someone who said, she, it says, she said if she had one wish in this life, goodness, this is a huge statement. It would be to go back and find the courage to decline unsolicited advice while bringing her baby into her bed, holding him close, making him feel safe and never leaving him alone to cry it out. And then you talk about cry it out. This is three words that are connected that we've all heard, cry it out. And then you go on to say, well, what's it? What's it? Yeah. And that's, I I wrote a post specifically about that, like saying cry it out. What are we saying? They're crying it out. And in that post, I talk about that they're crying for us. 
they're crying for us to come to them. Yeah. Like Gordon Newfeld says, you know, that the only way they can attach to us in that first year is through proximity. It's through connection to us. Yeah. They're crying for us. And eventually they stop crying, not because they've magically learned how to sleep. We don't need to teach babies how to sleep no more than we need to teach them how to walk or breathe. It's a developmental skill that we can't rush and babies sleep very differently to grownups. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that it is us. And if we can just go to them, then it makes all the difference. And these babies that, you know, when babies do eventually stop crying, it's not because they've magically learned how to sleep. It's because they've learned that nobody's coming. Mm -hmm. And so they stop crying and they go to sleep. It's like, what if instead of saying cry it out, we said cry us out. And that's really what's happening. So this is encouraging for parents to read. And one of those things that you just, you want to know, you want to know, you want to have a lot of perspectives on it so that you can make a choice that you don't regret later on. You wrote in that article, none of us self-soothe. So they're crying for us to come, for us not to leave, for us to pick them up, for us to soothe them and to hold them close. They're crying for us. So very important. We had our youngest, she didn't, you know, we're talking about just normalizing things, right? So our youngest, she didn't sleep through the night until she was four and a half, which felt very long. She also nursed for a very long time. She nursed until an age I'm not even comfortable sharing with now, but I will be able to share with maybe in like 10 years. So she nursed for a really long time. She seemed to have a little bit of attachment. Uh, She was scared to be alone. I'm not quite sure where all that came from, but anyway, just some different things with her. And she didn't sleep through the night until she was four and a half. And when she was two, three, you know, you're, you're starting to really feel frayed by that. And I had a friend, though, who told me her child didn't sleep through the night until he was four and a half. And I remember when she told me that, it didn't change the fact that we're up at night or there's some disrupted sleep. It just made me feel like we're not abnormal and this is okay. Yeah. And I think it's an important message. Yeah. And that's all it can take, Jenny, is just one or two other people to say that they're experiencing the same thing. And then you suddenly go, oh, okay. <laughs> like I'm not alone and I'm okay. And there are these, um, you might've come across them. There were these amazing experiments. I think they started back in the fifties or sixties by a guy called Solomon Ash. And he would show different size lines to like groups of people, just like lines on a page. Mm-hmm. And there would be actors in the room who would intentionally, so he would say, here's line A, which is at the same size as, and he would have actors in the room who would intentionally choose the wrong size line. And so people would choose the correct size, but then they would see other people choosing the wrong size and they would change their answer to go with the crowd because it's built into us to want to try to fit in. Mm -hmm. But then if we put other people in who would choose the correct answer, even if they just had a couple of people, then they'd feel confident to change their answer back. It's similar to that, what we're going through. And I say to parents, if we were all back in hunter-gatherer days, all this natural parenting, it wouldn't be called natural parenting or it would just be called parenting or like, it's just, Mm -hmm. we would already be with the crowd because we'd all just be doing the same thing. So it's really just that we're like connected to and trying to honor our instincts. But one of the other things that I'd like to say, because you've raised this a couple of times is that we can only do the best that we can with the information and the knowledge and resources we have at the time. And so when we learn something later, like we can't beat ourselves up for that. It's like we 
did what we did with the information we had right then. And there are many things in my parenting. And I know that there'll be things to come that I'm like, darn, I wish I'd known that like a couple of years ago, I could have done something different, but I didn't know. So I can't change it. Right. And so it's like just learning and moving on. Mm -hmm. But yes, I think to never beat yourself up for something that you learn a little bit later. Sure, sure. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last-minute get-together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com outside120 and use code outside120 to get off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash outside120 code outside120. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit BetterHelp.com 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 1000 hours. So let's talk about breastfeeding because that's another thing that you talk about. Well, breastfeeding as it relates to sleep, so we can start there. There is this thing of like not letting your child breastfeed to sleep. That feels so natural. It's like the most (laughs) natural thing ever. They're like, well, you're going to create a bad sleep association. So what's going on with that? Yeah. Again, it's just another cultural thing. You'll hear this all like, you know, put them down drowsy, but awake. Like, don't let them, yeah, breastfeeding to sleep is a bad sleep association. Like they're using you as a human pacifier, which is just the most ironic thing because it's like I'm pretty sure that breasts came before pacifiers and that pacifiers are designed after breasts. <laughs> like <laughs> pacifiers are artificial breasts. Right. Nursing to sleep is just the most natural thing in the world and it's easy because it's meant to be like mother nature isn't trying to like play tricks on us and make life hard. She's trying to help us make things easier. So breastfeeding to sleep is just a normal, natural thing to do. But our society tells us that, no, that's not the right thing to do. And so it really sets mothers up to think that they're doing something wrong. 
So I share on my site, I have articles specifically about this and talking about, I think sometimes it's really helpful to share some of the science that goes along with this. So one example that just really proves that mother nature has got it right is that young babies are born without circadian rhythms. So our circadian rhythm is telling us when it's daytime and when it's nighttime and when it's time to be awake and when it's time to be asleep. And one of the hormones that comes into play with that is melatonin. So the sun goes down and um, we start to produce melatonin. Um, we start to feel sleepy. There's more to it than that, but that's part of it. We feel sleepy and we go to sleep. Mm -hmm. Babies are born without circadian rhythms and they can't produce melatonin. I didn't know that. Yeah. So what has melatonin in it? Nighttime breast milk. Wow. So daytime breast milk doesn't have melatonin in it. But nighttime breast milk has high levels of melatonin in it. And so it helps babies sleep. Unbelievable. So this is one of the messages that I also give to mums who pump is that if you're pumping breast milk, make sure to label it daytime and nighttime and give the nighttime stuff at nighttime to make them sleep. I would have never thought of that. Yeah. Whoops. So, well, our kids never took a bottle. We tried. Yeah. Yeah. Mine too. Wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. We shouldn't need the science to like prove all this stuff back to us, but we got off track at some point and we lost that like maternal lineage that just would like let us know how to do these things. And we didn't really need to know specifically why we just accepted that it was normal to breastfeed to sleep. But now that we've got off track, I think science can really help us yeah. prove to us that, no, it is normal to do that. In spite yeah. of all these other voices telling you otherwise, yeah. it's completely normal. And you're just setting yourself up to make motherhood harder if you try to go against nature, I think. Yeah. And melatonin is just one example. Like there's lots of others. And in that article, I share some others, um, you know, the sucking reflex and there's lots of other hormones and things that help to make babies feel sleepy through breastfeeding. And it also helps mums. So just the act of breastfeeding, mums feel sleepy and fall asleep. And we can sometimes misunderstand that to think, oh God, motherhood is just so tiring. But it's like, no, this is actually trying to help you get the rest that you need. Mm -hmm. Maybe you should be falling asleep with baby instead of getting up and staying awake until midnight because you really need to bank that sleep now. Wow. That's fascinating. Because I do remember, especially when we had little babies, I could fall asleep, no problem, in the middle of the day. If they're nursing and they fall asleep, when I fall asleep and you get that little bit of extra rest. Yeah. How interesting. Well, people can find out all this information on your website at raisegood.com. I think the science does help. It's like we need it. We need it to come full circle and to give us a little bit of a confidence boost. I talked about this a bit, a bit ago, but what about breastfeeding beyond babyhood? So you write, our Western culture considers breastfeeding beyond babyhood to be abnormal and in many ways, consciously or not, sabotage the practice. And so you talk about how we should expect that our children could breastfeed for three to seven years. Yeah. Now we've definitely fallen into that category of three to seven years. Yeah, me too. So what can we be telling parents and and why? I mean, you have so much great, great information about like second year postpartum breast milk and everything that's in there. What's going on with the extended breastfeeding? Yeah, well, I think, um, and and I mean, just to say up front, like I, you know, I come from a fan, I'm the oldest of four and I still remember the formula and the smell of formula on the, on the bench at home. I was, you know, formula fed baby in the early eighties. So 
I fully expected to, I, I wasn't really expecting to breastfeed. Yeah. When I was in my twenties and stuff, I was like, oh no, I'll just, I would just do formula. And then I, you know, became pregnant, became a mom. And I was like, yeah, I really want to breastfeed. And I remember being at my naturopath when my son was a few months old and she said, how long do you think you'll breastfeed for? And I said, I don't know, like maybe until a year, like till he's 12 months. And she was like, I would really love you to try to at least go to two years. Like it's so good for their immune system. It's so good for them. And, and I, I said to her, but he won't be a baby anymore. And she looked at me and she just said, he will always be your baby. And I was just like, oh, okay. What an experience, Tracy, for someone that's so out of the normal experience. Like most of it is shunned or hush hush. And for someone to say, hey, I'd really actually like for you to go longer. Yeah, like to consider that. So yeah, I mean, I never made a decision like, I will breastfeed until such and such an age. It's like probably like you, Jenny, it was like I'm breastfeeding today and I'll probably be breastfeeding tomorrow and then it becomes the next day and the next day and it's just one day at a time. You don't decide I'm going to do it for this many years. You just follow your baby's lead. Yeah, so I mean we really promote breastfeeding. Um, We really encourage it. We have slogans like breast is best, which I don't agree with. I think saying that anything is best is judgmental and leaves mothers um, feeling lesser than when they can't breastfeed or they choose not to. And then there's fed is best. And I don't agree with that either. Like fed is like the minimum. (laughs) um, I think informed is best, supported is best, Mm -hmm. the freedom to choose what you want to do. We really encourage breastfeeding, but there seems to be some random age I don't know if it's six months 12 months Mm -hmm. where we don't really support it anymore certainly not in public and we don't really talk about it and so as soon as I went over 12 months and went over two years and went over three years and Mm -hmm. you know I was like I really wanted to learn more about this and I'm sure that you'd agree particularly when you're mothering a toddler my god breast milk breastfeeding is like magic like i don't know how i would have got through tantrums without it oh my goodness no kidding every tantrum done and then a lot of times they would fall asleep and i think that so often we associate this misbehavior with oh they're acting out or they're tired Mm. and so they're they're really upset about something or they're having a tantrum i mean i cannot i cannot tell you how many times they happen where you think oh, I've got this terror of a kid, you know? <laughs> and then you, they would nurse and they'd fall right asleep. They were tired. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, it was the magic solution for just about everything for the twos and the threes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, um, so yeah, there's this idea that, you know, breast milk just turns to water after a certain age for some random, you know, just, it's just a random idea. Um, that we have in our society, um, not to water, but you know that it loses its magic. Um, it certainly doesn't, and it keeps changing over time to meet the needs of the baby. And from a neurological perspective, our kids are babies until they're at least three years of age. From a brain development perspective, we need to really think of infancy as being from zero to three. So anyway, I wrote a blog post on my website, which people can go and have a look at, um, about breastfeeding beyond infancy. And again, sort of looked at the anthropological evidence for if we went back in time, if we were cave people, when would we be breastfeeding our babies to? 
And there's all this different evidence that suggests that a biologically normal weaning age is anywhere between three years to seven years. And they're called baby teeth for a reason, Um, you know, losing those milk teeth um, that we call them. There's research on there for like looking at other primates and things that, um, you know, breastfeeding is, it can be four to six times the length of gestation, I think. Breastfeeding can be until a certain, however much weight they've gained, I think, until it's like they've quadrupled their, their birth weight. All these different things that go to suggest that a biologically normal weaning age is anywhere between three and seven. And I think the worldwide average weaning age is four. Wow. So if the average weaning age is four, and if a lot of mums in Western culture aren't even breastfeeding or, or are stopping at three months, then we can only guess that in other cultures, it's probably like seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's this misconception that it's mothers that are uh, somehow forcing breastfeeding on their children. And I think for any breastfeeding mother, you would know that that's just not the case at all. You're following the child. Right. And for us, that's what we did. I didn't have, I didn't have a second baby. So we just weaned when he was ready to stop. And one day he just said, I'm big boy now, I'm ready to stop. And yeah. And it kind of went for a couple more months after that. And then I don't know when the last time was. And that's the, that was the sad thing. I was like, I can't remember when, because it just was like this natural, yeah. it just sort of, yeah, tapered off. Isn't that one of the things that you read? Like you, you never know when the last time is you're going to carry them on a hike or the last time you're going to read that particular story. Yeah. And I appreciate you putting out this information because for one of our kids, nursed longer than the other ones and there were some tears you know like a birthday would be coming up and she might say well I'm gonna have to stop nursing and be very upset about it you know I'm gonna be this age and I'm gonna have to stop nursing and I would say (laughs) I cannot tell you how many times I said to her the average age for nursing is three to seven (laughs) I kept you know I kept going back to that you know to say it's okay and and there's no one pushing you to do any certain way or any certain thing so I think that parents are listening. You may come back to that that statement. Before I became a mom, Tracy, I was under the impression that if a child could ask to nurse, they were too old. That was the decision I was making. Yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah, I was the same. Yeah, and then this is a thing to be able to come back and say, the average age is three to seven years. That's a big range and it's all considered normal. So, you know, I know there's also things about breastfeeding in public. So this is a thing, especially if we're trying to get outside. So we are in public a lot. And I tell you what, I nursed in a lot of beautiful places on tops of mountains and waterfalls. So actually it's really fantastic. But how can we support mothers and nursing in public? Well, it's it's a hard one, isn't it? I think, I think for it it depends on on how comfortable you know it it's so personal i think yeah um and it's it's how comfortable you are i mean i i wasn't comfortable at the start um and then i it's amazing what people don't see you know like you think that they're going to notice you but it's amazing how often people just go about their daily lives and don't notice what's going on around them. So mm-hmm. I think that's probably one of the first messages I give is that you are going to be so much more aware of it than anybody else is. Mm-hmm. I never used a nursing cover. My son was pretty sensitive. Like he he just wouldn't have liked that around his head. And that almost made me feel more self-conscious than just going for it. 
And I think that's important for people. I, and I don't know who's listening. There may not be anybody in this realm that's that's listening. But I think sometimes people are really judgmental. Like, well, why aren't they using a nursing cover? Why can't they just use a nursing cover? And yeah. by the time they can move their hands, they're ripping it off anyway. Yeah, totally. And it really makes things a juggle. And it's like a little circus act there. I mean, they're smart. They're four months. They're five months. They're hot under there. And so I think we can't assume that just because someone's not using a nursing cover that they're like inconsiderate or something like that. No. And I think, I mean, you know, this is where it comes back to society is that, um, I mean, if I see a breastfeeding mom in public, like I'm giving her a thumbs up. Yeah. I'm like, you know, awesome. Because this idea that mums, like we've waited our whole lives to have a baby, to like get our boobs out and start flashing society is like just ridiculous, just ridiculous. You know, we've sexualized women's bodies so much. We're okay to have women on billboards and in magazines and sexualizing women's bodies, but we're not okay with feeding an infant in the way that mother nature designed. Like that's where we've really got a problem with society. There's nothing wrong with what that mum is doing. She's just feeding her baby. Yeah, so it really comes back to bigger societal questions, I think, and trying to undo that. And, um, you know, for the mums who can feel confident to do it, knowing that we're the change makers. Um, and that's where I had to really sort of rouse my courage from is like I'm making it easier for the next generation of mums by doing this now. I'm making it easier for my kid when he has a baby and, you know, and his partner is breastfeeding, making it easier for them. Um, and it's not always easy to be the change maker, but um, sometimes to step into that, have the courage to do that. And then I think just from a practical perspective, like, you know, talking about breastfeeding covers and things, there are so many amazing breastfeeding like clothes and stuff, mm-hmm. like with all different kind of openings and and things that can make it easy for breastfeeding in public. So, yeah, I think just finding whatever makes it easiest, um, and yeah, and a supportive partner and having supportive people around you. And I love the idea of a thumbs up. Yeah, how can we support moms in public? A thumbs up. Totally, that's a great yeah. way to support. Yeah. When the skies open up, while others seek shelter. I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody, and my Vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessies Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com slash outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh 
never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. Lots of fantastic information. One other big topic is that we've lost our community and that makes parenting very hard because we're having to do it all on our own. And I have so many experiences of just feeling such a relief to be with another person, to be with another family, to be with another mom and her kids. I had this time in life where we lived in a townhome and there was a mom three or four townhomes down and she had two kids that were same age as our two kids. One, The two of them even have the exact same birthday. And wow, did we support each other during the infancy And one day this person would make a little bit of extra food and bring dinner and then you'd swap and you'd help and you just would be together. We spent a lot of times in that, what people call the witching hour, right? Together. So, you know, after nap, but before dinner, we would spend a lot of that before maybe a spouse is coming home from work. We would spend a lot of that time together. So this is one of the things that you talk about. What are some of your suggestions on how to create that community? Some people use the word village. How do we create that when we don't have it? Yeah, I think it's such a great point that you raise and that recognition as well that we're not meant to be doing it alone. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes when it feels extra hard when we're doing it alone, that's the reason because we're really meant to be doing it in community. And that doesn't necessarily change it, but can make us feel a little bit better that acknowledgement that we're not doing anything wrong with this feeling hard because a mom and a baby at home alone all day long in an apartment, that's not normal for a mom to have that kind of pressure on her to be like the only carer for that baby. Yeah. So yeah, I think this acknowledgement that we we have lost this village and community around us. I think, you know, I was parenting as a new mom in like a brand new city. Um, I didn't have family and stuff around. So for me, it was just trying to connect with as many other mums with like similar interests. And one of them that you'll appreciate, Jenny, was just like a, um, it was a baby wearing group, a hiking group. And we all just get together and there'd be like 12 of us with, you know, babies on our fronts and, um, yeah. and getting some exercise and talking together and the babies napping in their carriers and off we'd go for a hike. Even just those little touch points throughout the week to have something to rely on, I think can make a huge difference. For us, we actually ended up moving to a smaller community and like that's quite a big step, but we were really craving more connection than what we could find in the city. 
So we actually ended up moving to a smaller community. But yeah, I think just finding those mums that you can, like you did, obviously, a couple of townhouses down, supporting one another. And there's so many different ways that you can connect with, whether it's hiking groups or baby and me yoga groups or different things like that. And then just reaching out to the mums that you're in that group with and saying, you want to go for a coffee after? Like, let's connect. And because it can be hard to make friends as an adult, can't it? Like it's so easy when you're a kid, all you have to have in common is that you're both there and you're both like kicking a ball Mm -hmm. around or whatever the thing is like, and you're friends. Mm -hmm. Um, But making friends as an adult can be harder. It is hard. And there's some flex that happens. Sometimes some don't work and you got to try different ones and try different people and see where you connect. So it's a little bit of a process, but it's so important. Yeah. It makes such a difference. I just finished reading Hunt, Gather, Parent by Michaeline Duclef. And she talks about how in other cultures, like they basically say, you should never be alone with a crying baby. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What a statement. Yeah. You should never think about how often. I mean, I think about how many hours I spent with a crying baby and crying toddlers. And it's a big thing to at least be aware. Once again, coming back to the awareness piece. And, you know, if there are small things you can do to connect, that will really help you. Yeah, definitely. I was reminded of you as well. I think when we were messaging, we went on a camping trip about three weeks ago with a group, there must be about 10 families and we were all connected, you know, for three days camping with our kids. Like the kids were just off, like doing their own stuff. And they just had an absolute blast. And that was a real like moment of community. It was like, oh, I was known as the one that had remembered to bring maple syrup. So people were coming over to my campsite (laughs) and someone else had remembered this. And then my car battery died. So someone else had jumper leads. And it was just like this Mm -hmm. community, you know, of like this instant connection and community and thinking like, how much easier would it be if we were more connected? Like motherhood and parenthood would feel so much easier. Mm-hmm. Like you say, just not that the stress that it can put on your system from being alone with a crying baby. One message that I would love to give to parents just about that crying baby thing is that it's not your job to stop the crying. I think mm. so many parents feel so much pressure that it's their job to stop the crying and that they've failed if they haven't stopped the crying, that their baby's stressed out if they're crying and they can't stop it. But to remember that your job is not to stop the crying, it's to be there just to support your baby. And again, there's research that comes back to this, that it's very different for a baby to be crying alone. Their cortisol levels spike when they're crying in the arms of a loving caregiver who's supporting them they're still crying, but their cortisol levels aren't spiking. So just your presence makes all the difference. And if that can help, Mm -hmm. just realize that you don't have to stop the crying to be making a difference. Mm, That's so powerful. So we've talked about these topics that can be hard to talk about for mothers. And you talked about the breast is best, fed is best, co-sleeping, things that we learn down the road that we wish we would have learned earlier. And so one of the things that you also talk about is shame, maybe some guilt that we feel. Well, you talked about it a little bit earlier, you know, dealing with infertility and that you have endometriosis. So I think sometimes we, maybe out of an effort to make ourselves feel better, we can make things feel pretty crummy for other people. So you talk about how empowered women empower women. How do you handle these different situations when they come up, what advice do you have? 
Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's a big question and it's, um, yeah, it's hard because we live in this world, you know, particularly with social media of this just constant comparison mm-hmm. um, and uh, thinking thinking that we understand another person's life when really we know about 1%. And yeah. um, whenever I'm sharing about difficult topics that I know will be controversial and that I know will be triggering for some mothers and I know that I will get comments saying that I'm shaming other mothers, is coming back to saying, no, like, no, we're allowed to question society, but I would never judge another mother because I don't know their situation. And that's not my place to do that. So trying to separate ourselves from, um, like we do with our kids, when instead of, um, you know, I'm bad, it's like, oh, that wasn't the best choice, was it? Like, I made a mistake. Um, making it safe and making that separation between guilt and shame that, you know, Brené Brown talks about so much, separating from behaviour from the person, loving our kids unconditionally for who they are instead of what they do. And I think through really um, sinking into that as a parent and trying to do that for my child, I've needed to do that for myself as well. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm from a family with my mom wanted six kids. She had four. Um, I always just naturally thought I would have two. Like, what's the average? Like 2.5 kids is like the standard family or whatever. And then, you know, you have these preconceived ideals of what you think your life is going to look like. Mm-hmm. You have a plan for like how it's going to go. Right. And then life has other ideas and it turns out differently. And one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in motherhood is to step into that, know that you're stepping into that unknown, mm-hmm. into that dark space where you don't know what you're going to find, to be vulnerable and open enough and willing to step into it instead of um, shutting it off and trying to trying to control your life and trying to, um, you know, control your kid and trying to like co-sleeping and, and breastfeeding till you don't know when is a real act of surrender. And I think that takes a lot of courage. And I think it also makes life interesting because if we know how it's going to end, if you know exactly what's going to happen in a movie before you watch it, it's not so exciting to watch. Mm -hmm. And life is like that too. And we just get this one short life. And I am just so grateful to have like one happy, healthy, just amazing son. And there are so many misconceptions around what an only child is like. And like most things that we've talked about on this podcast already, they're all wrong. <laughs> like this idea, the ideas that we have around what only kids are like, they're all wrong. And having one child then opens up so many other doors to other things that I wouldn't experience in life had I had two or three or four kids. And if I'd had two or three or four kids, then that would have also been amazing. So I think just this acceptance that as is, you know, Shafali talks about accepting the as is of the present moment. So much of our suffering comes from resistance. It comes from resisting how life actually is, wanting it to be how we thought it was, wanting it to be how we think we want it to be. But if we can just accept how it actually is, then we can step into the joy that that can bring us in that present moment. So I think acceptance is just a big thing. And that's not a white flag. That's not giving up. That's um, living in reality instead of fantasy. 
and it, we're always striving to like, you know, to achieve and to, and to reach for the things that we really want, but not in a way that it's, um, yeah, that it brings shame or, or limitations. Yeah. Mm. Does that kind of help? That's so beautiful. I think people will find so much encouragement from that. I'm so glad that we've connected. Me too. What a gift. Me too. And so on your, on your website, raisegood.com, you have all of these different articles that people can find things to talk about, things to think about, just ways to look at things that maybe they hadn't before. So that's there. You also have a shop and you have books and guides and courses to help people on a natural parenting journey. And you have a bunch of different education and course resources. So the attached child, nurtured nights, and you have an ebook called Discover the Lost Art of Natural Parenting. And also coming up or possibly even this week, depending on the, exactly the date that this lands, you do a summit, a parenting summit. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're a guest this year, which is mm-hmm. awesome. You're a speaker. You. So we talked all about getting outside with kids. Yeah, it's an annual summit that I run in September. Um, so this year it'll be September 21st to 25th. Um, there's 25 speakers on topics related to natural parenting. Um, so we talk about things like like sleep, like we've talked about, um, emotional development. Um, we're talking about stuttering this year in kids. We're talking about getting outside. There's just so many amazing speakers. Um uh, we talk about natural health, you know, a lot of the things like we talked about, like co-regulation and yes, yeah, so we have some amazing speakers. We have um, Dr. Laura Markham, um, Dr. Shafali Sabari, we have um, Gabor Mate, we have just an incredible lineup. I'm just too grateful for everybody that's on it. Um, you're on it. Linda McGurk is on it. I know she's been on this podcast a number of times. Yay! I always feel sad when I have to stop interviewing people because I get to 25 and I'm like, oh, there's more amazing people that I want to talk to. So grateful for that. And yeah, it's it's just a fun week. So there's five speakers a day and um, people can tune in and yeah, something for everybody to listen to. That's fantastic. So that starts in September and you run registration a little bit beforehand and it goes for the week. Yeah. Goes for five days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's fantastic. How many have you done? How many summits? This is the fourth one. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's a big commitment. I'll see whether I make it to a fifth. (laughs) That's a big commitment every year. What are some of the most listened to topics? Oh, well, I know you've had Kim John Payne on here. I've spoken to him a couple of times in the past. He's amazing. Like I just, yeah. I love chatting with him. He's a fellow Australian. So um, he's he's mm-hmm. uh, easy for me to talk to as well about simplifying childhood. That's one of my favorite things to talk about too, is just um, welcoming simplicity um, into our lives. Um, Dr. Gordon Neufeld has been a guest a couple of times um, talking all about attachment and um, attachment science and yeah, he's been, in, he's incredible. So yeah, I'm just so grateful. Like yeah. you said at the start, like these amazing people that you're like, seriously, I get to talk to that person. Like, <laughs> wow, it's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it truly is unbelievable. Yeah. You can hardly believe it. Yeah. Sometimes I'll go to the bookstore now and I'll be like, I have talked to so many of these authors yeah. beforehand. I never had, never thought I would get the chance to. So this summit's going to be fantastic. So many people that can come and encourage parents to give information. This Hunt Gather Parent book that I've talked about that I just read, she said in there, like, we don't really know what we're doing. 
we don't. We think we do. And I think that there's this impression, there's this thought out there that we've got all the intuition we need, but we don't really know what we're doing. And we need some help and we need some guidance. So that's going to be the fantastic. So people can find information at raisegood.com. I also want to mention that your social media is very encouraging. So people want to have that at the top of their list. You know, it's like we don't want to spend a ton of time on social media, but you want to have the people coming through your stream that are encouraging you. And you are constantly doing that both visually and through your words. So you just post these gorgeous photos, photos that are relatable to families and then that encouraging word that maybe we're not getting anywhere else. And so people can follow along on the social media as well. It's very helpful. the, The information is what parents need and what parents need right now and it's consistent. So you just have done such a beautiful job. Like I said, I've been following that for like a decade. I don't know, maybe more. So um, it's been really helpful in my own parenting journey too. So people can find you in those places and hopefully they'll come hang out at the summit. And then we always end our podcast, Tracy, with the same question. What's a favorite outdoor memory from your childhood? I think I was thinking about this before I got on as well. We used to spend a lot of time at my grandparents' place. They lived in a country town in Victoria, in Australia. Uh, My grandpa had a farm. And I can't really separate the experiences that I had up there, but um, going out with my grandpa early in the morning out to his farm and moving cows and fixing fences and doing all that kind of stuff. And then there was an amazing lake in the town that they lived in. And we spent a lot of time at the lake, Hmm. just swimming and playing and having fun and playing with the dog and throwing sticks and the summers that that I spent up there would be my my favorite experiences as a kid. I love that answer. I had just read this quote in uh, this book called Made for People by Justin Whitmill Early. And he had a quote in there from Emerson that says, I cannot remember the books I've read any more than the meals I have eaten. Even so, they have made me. Yeah, that's powerful. So that's a really cool answer. And it kind of like goes along with what we're talking about. Like you're not going to ever remember this distinct moment when you were breastfeeding or maybe this distinct moment where you went and got your baby or this distinct summer moment at the lake, spending time with your family. But those things make you over time. Yeah, they do, don't they? And that's, yeah, that's one of the things I try to, yeah, I love that quote try to sink into it sometimes you know like as as amazing as it is that we can just photograph everything all the time and I and I do that all the time too but sometimes I'm like I'm just no I'm putting the camera away I just want to be here in this moment yeah yeah because yeah, it's that feeling that you remember more than more than exactly yeah. what it looked like yeah yeah well thank you Tracy this has been so awesome can't wait for the summit and uh I know everyone's thankful that you took the time to be here me too thank you so much for having me thanks Jenny If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. 
Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy.